Welcome to this episode of the Lucid Dreaming Podcast, where we offer deep stereo conversations with contemporary moving image makers and artists from all over the world. We're reaching out to you from under the rock of reality like a cochlear octopus. We're beginning this series of conversations in a time of uncertainty for many, a time where we're not able to come together as we would in the film and arts community to celebrate and discuss each other's work. We hadn't planned to begin this way, but perhaps connection and dialogue is more important now than any other time. We hope these conversations allow you to connect with and question the work of our guests. Many of the makers we feature in these episodes may be new to you, but we urge you to seek out their work. We'll be posting links in our feed to help guide you to it. In each episode, our host, the author and film curator Pamela Cohn, will engage with a new moving image maker. So turn up the volume, find a comfortable position, and let's begin. Hello, dreamers. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast. I'm Pamela Cohn. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with filmmaker, writer, and frequent rabble-rouser Penny Lane about her prolific and diverse body of work. She'll be speaking to us today from her home in Brooklyn, New York. It's so wonderful to get the opportunity to speak to her. The first time I encountered Penny Lane, she was standing on a chair at the 2008 Flaherty Seminar, gesticulating wildly and talking a blue streak, either to defend a point or to chastise someone for sloppy thinking. I can't really remember precisely. I'd just like to supply a sketch of her background for our listeners and then we'll get to it. Penny received her MFA in Integrated Electronic Arts at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, following a bachelor's in American Culture and Media Studies from Vassar College. She has taught film, video, and new media art at Bard College, Hampshire College, and Williams College, and currently teaches art and art history at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, coming full circle since Colgate is also home to the aforementioned Flaherty Seminar. Penny's been awarded many prestigious grants over the course of her career, the latest the honor of being named a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow in Film and Video. She's been making award-winning nonfiction films since 2004. After creating a diverse array of short experimental works, Penny has four feature-length documentaries under her belt, with a fifth one in production called Confessions of a Good Samaritan, which we'll learn more about later in the hour. Her most recent feature is called Hail Satan, which premiered at Sundance 2019 and had a wide release through Magnolia Pictures. Her three previous features are The Pain of Others from 2018, Nuts, a personal favorite of mine, from 2016, and Our Nixon from 2013. Her short films, such as Just Add Water and The Voyagers, have all won accolades at festivals, and most of them can be viewed for free on her Vimeo page. And yes, Penny Lane is her real name. Hi, Penny Lane. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for that great introduction. You're welcome. It's a really great pleasure to have you um, here. Um, I wanted to start in a sort of general way. Um, For me, watching your short and feature film work over the years, um, one encounters just this uncanny, free-ranging intelligence um, imbued with equal parts humor, but also with very deep pathos. And for me, you have a particular talent for the art of seeing and making connections between apparently unconnected entities in a very powerful way. I'd like to start a little bit with autobiography, if you don't mind, Uh, just more in line with what kind of sparks happened um, in your growing up years to sort of, I don't know, sort of push you in a direction of of creating, of of making art, of looking at the world through the lens um, of, of archives, certainly, but also through visual storytelling? Oh, I love that question. Um, there's something about this weird pandemic moment that's forced a lot of us into this kind of uh, autobiographical introspection, at least for me, which is not my normal mode. So you're asking this at a good time because I actually have an answer for you. Um, 
when I think about, you know, there were some like therapists at some point in my life who asked me to free associate. And she said, um, what was the safest you ever felt as a child? Like, that was a question she asked me to like answer without thinking. And um, I immediately said, I'm alone, uh, alone in a room with my like stuffed animals or my art supplies or my books. And, and that just like, I think really is true. Like, so I grew up in a really chaotic, frightening, bad world. And my place of happiness and safety and joy was alone, like with like a door that closed and nobody bothering me with my imagination and my like little props that I could like move around and like, you know, I would build little like dioramas to put my little toys in, right? Um, and draw and write stories and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think that that, and, and notice what I didn't say there, like for most documentary filmmakers, I feel like the spark comes from interaction. Like it comes from like wanting to go out in the world and like interact with people. <laughs> leading to a particular sort of camera centric, right? Sort of ex filmmaker as explorer of the physical world uh, kind of mode. And that's not where I started. So in a way it's sort of ill suited to documentary as typically I think done, but obviously very well suited for leaning into a certain kind of work that is more introspective, research-based, writing-based, archive-based, um, you know, and maybe a little more, um, I don't know what the word would be, but like centered on um, an artistic practice that's about being alone and a little less centered on a kind of like running a team of people constantly mode. Um, so I think that's a great question. And, uh, and I, I do think about that a lot these days, like, because now we're, again, we're all, so many of us are trapped alone all the time in ways that we aren't used to. Um, but I gotta tell you, like, this is my happy place. Like, it's not a good time. Bad things are happening. I'm very stressed about the state of the world. It's, it, it is impacting me. I'm not just sitting here, like, in joy all the time. <laughs> but I do truly center my work on just being alone. <laughs> so being alone for me is very, mm -hmm. very good. Um, the you wrote a guest column um for filmmaker magazine for for many years are, are you still writing or was was i think i'm technically but i haven't yeah, written one in yeah. two years so yeah i need to get back <laughs> on it i really enjoyed doing it but writing is very difficult and painful so oh i know like really a lot of effort. i know a lot of a lot of effort went into those pieces and they're all like too long for the internet <laughs> and, and so i just wasn't like i wasn't sure what i was trying to accomplish and i decided to kind of table it until i figured yeah. that out but it's interesting because you write in such a um colloquial way like i actually hear your your voice as you're speaking and and um i wanted to to mention that in the guest column it's called notes on and you would pick a topic and and go go crazy um you wrote uh, uh, um on uh notes on quotes from january 2018 Asserting my authority for me is the hardest part of the job. And in line with what you just told me about your bid for solitude and the way in which that is your, create, your creative space, um, can you elaborate a little bit on this statement? Because particularly as it, as it pertains to your processes making long form work, because you know, audiences sort of come to documentary, I think, naturally feeling like the maker of whatever it is they're going to watch is the authority on something, on whatever subject that they're presenting, um, that you've done the research, you're presenting the hard-boiled truth or whatever you call it, um, and not really aware of all the subtleties involved um, in really making a stand um and and sort of explicating a very complicated event or situation or feeling um but i was kind of surprised when i read that because you do seem so authoritative um but it's also <laughs> i'll take it's that also as a, a very <laughs> feminine statement you know 
It is. And it's embarrassingly yeah. feminine in my yeah. opinion. You know, like I, I sort of like, you know, without naming names, like have a few kind of male counterparts that are sort of peers of mine in the field. And like, I, you know, admire and we're friends, but I also sort of compare myself to them. I think we all compare ourselves to other people. And um, I'm struck with how easily they occupy their authority. Like, you know, they just sort of make statements um, that I think, well, I mean, I mean, it's a little more complicated than, you know, so what it is, what I'm saying is that I have a hard time with a particular kind of authoritative statement that I think is subject to debate. If I think something is subject to debate, which almost everything is, it's very difficult for me to, with a straight face, sort of pretend like it's not. And I feel that that is demanded of me, um, not just as a, as a documentary filmmaker, but as a person, um, as a person with a public platform. And I know that that surprises a lot of people that know me, but I really agonize over it. I just like, I don't like saying that I'm certain about something that I'm not certain about. It's, it's, it's physically painful for me. Um, and there's a certain amount of like, you know, authority within filmmaking that I navigate in very particular careful ways. When I'm out in the world and I'm being asked to like pundit, <laughs> pundit away, that is nearly impossible for me. And that's why I kind of like failed to be a regular columnist in that sense, because you need to be able to just say like, here's the, th here's a thing and not agonize over it for like weeks on end. So for example, a different one of my columns, which was, um, no, it was the one about, uh, vaxxed. I was trying to like sort of get at the difference between a fact and a belief. And I was like, you know, typing away. And I typed, um, gravity is a fact. And then I was like, is it a fact? <laughs> and then I still, three hours later, I've like undermined my ability to say the simple sentence, gravity is a fact. And it is basically a fact. <laughs> but it just kind of like sent me spinning to even make a claim like that just felt so outside of my comfort zone that I ended up like spending three hours trying to figure out whether that gravity was a fact and forgetting what my original point was supposed to be. And, um, and I do think that there's something about like a formal writing that feels to me more serious than filmmaking. And like just the bias I have, um, I think I, I hold like nonfiction writers up in a, in a way to be like sort of in a higher plane of authority than documentary filmmakers, which is maybe stupid, but it just is in my head as a bias. So anyway, so that's a long-winded answer to your question. Does it sort of answer? It your does, question? but then you know, you're 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 continuing to film make. You're continuing to sort of. I yeah. mean, your back your background. Yeah. This is the this is like the mystery <laughs> of my life is that I feel so I feel so constantly um, self-critical and uh, filled with doubt and like it seems like I'm paralyzed with doubt. Like that's my internal experience. But then I like <laughs> look at my biography. And at age 42, I'm like actually forced by the factual record to acknowledge that clearly I'm not paralyzed by doubt and self, you know, uncertainty and like self-criticism. <laughs> clearly I'm producing a lot of work and being successful and doing things all the time. So I, I don't know where that disconnect is, but my, inter my internal truth is that I'm constantly paralyzed with doubt and like unable to occupy my authority and you know, intensely uncomfortable with being in charge, but then in real life, I'm like clearly in mm -hmm. charge. So I don't know what to tell you, but it's something I think about well, a lot. Well, because you're also a professor as well, you know, um, of, of art and art history, and you have this this uh, very robust background in electronic art in, in particular, but I mean, can you talk about um, a particular mentor um, during your own education? You know, what resonated with you in terms of, of getting over that hump of, of doubt and insecurity um, and, and learning how to storytell an image and sound um, without totally blocking yourself. And, and, and how do you sort of in turn um, share with your students these sort of cautionary tales about, you know, what might be, what might on the surface look detrimental in, in actuality might be a huge strength um, in, in the way you go about putting together, um, particularly a complex long form piece. I mean, each of your films is like a very meticulously put together 
uh, quilt, you know, um, that could just unravel at any moment. And that's, that's a very, um, it's a very exciting thing to see, at least for me as a viewer, you know, where you're sort of on tenterhooks, it's like, is she gonna pull this off? You know? <laughs> I love that. I, 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 I really wish I was, took bigger risks and I am thinking about that a lot lately too, but I will uh, answer your question by saying that, you know, I didn't actually study art making in school really at all until graduate school. So I didn't take any art classes or filmmaking classes as an undergrad. But I got involved in a local nonprofit organization that was dedicated to teaching children how to make media. You know, it was this sort of 1990s, like children's media literacy, almost movement, you know, kind of like parallel to indie media movement, you know, sort of community media centers. Um, and I, I worked there for a while and I, I basically learned how to make films by teaching, you know, five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds how to make films and learning alongside them. And I, I think that's the only way I could have done it because if I had walked into a filmmaking class as an undergraduate, like sort of with the taste level that I was at, uh, the gap between what I was sort of watching in my film classes on the screen and like writing about and like what I'd be able to do as a beginner, was so great. I just don't think I could have gotten very far. And also, I think I had a lot of peers who were further along, like would have made better films in, in film class, and I probably would just would have been crushed. But learning alongside like kids, great. You know, no pressure, no standard. Like, you know, you sort of watch what a five-year-old makes, and it's always great. Like, it doesn't matter that they don't know how to make a film like they just make something great because they're fearless and imaginative and they haven't had that beat out of them yet and so to me that was the only way it could have happened um so i would say all my mentors were children <laughs> that's great that's wonderful and <laughs> and i always wish i could get back to that like state of just it's innocence, difficult you know just that kind of play it's so hard like even when i look at my first films from like 2003 four five i'm like wow I couldn't like I couldn't make those films now. And that's a an interesting feeling to kind of be old enough to have to, to recognize that you don't just like gradually get better at things and then you have all the same tools in your toolbox, but there's more of them. Actually, it changes like what's in that toolbox and my ability to just be like totally wild with my choices because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I just I didn't have any standard for like what it should look like when you did X or whatever or if something was going to work or not. I just didn't have any idea. So I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I wonder how to trick yourself almost to get into that state of mind more as you get older. It's a big puzzle mm -hmm. for me. It is. It is difficult. I mean, and, and you know, you're teaching now, you know, university level students who obviously in terms of how they're approaching work might also be strictured as well with the same level of competition you just mentioned, et cetera. Um, so, um, there, there is a sense, it, it, at least in my mind of, of this, this lack of, um, allowing yourself to be in that free zone, in that dream state, in that, you know, subconscious level of, of creation where, where things are weird and they stay weird and inexplicable. But I mean, I still contend, um, I want to move in more specifically into, into your work now, because I still contend that um, there are inklings of that, um, where you're still grabbing on to, you know, to that free zone um, of play. Um, it's just the work of finding those the right partners, right, to to play with you. Um, I, I, you mentioned something else in another column entry, um, really funny title called Five Things Tinder Guys Don't Know About Being an Independent Filmmaker. Um, and, and in line with thinking about nuts in particular, um, I'll, I'll quote you again in that column, you said, you have to fight like hell to remain enchanted by your film and you have to be ready to fight like hell for the film's right to exist. And this seems so obvious in art making, but 
I hear from so many makers their, their shock and dismay when they learn that the average time it takes to make a feature documentary could be a decade of your life practically, um, from soup to nuts, um, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, can you talk a little bit specifically about your discovery of this story that you needed to tell and the way in which you felt you needed to go about illustrating this, this uh, story, which on paper is, is kind of crazy, but also again holds so much about, you know, the, the story arc of one person's life that looks one way on the surface um, but then, you know, the, your, your build to the end, which is quite emotional and moving, um, is that much more of a, of a beautiful surprise. Thank you. Um, let me say one thing about this idea of having to fight. I think I'm only somewhat recently really getting that that might be my superpower. Like, I, I don't necessarily think I'm better at this or that or smarter than this or that person, but I look around and I sometimes see that I have a tenacity. I, without understanding why or having any explanation for it, I am very good at like staying in that place of being like, nope, I knew this is a good idea. Even seven years later, no one agrees with me, but I'm still sure. And I cannot explain that, but that must be like a huge part of why I've made it as far as I have because like Nuts is a really good example of it's just a film that nobody else really needed it to exist. Like um, it, it wasn't like ripped from the headlines. And, you know, I basically saw the story or I read a book about the guy. Can you, know, you can you just supply library. a little bit of a of the background um, for for listeners who might not have seen? Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. So basically Nuts is about a man named John Brinkley who about a hundred years ago uh, became very famous uh, for, for pioneering a treatment for impotence that involved the transplantation of goat testicles from goats into men. And, you know, he made millions of dollars and performed this surgery tens of thousands of times and became a giant radio pioneer and a huge media personality and built this whole empire, which all collapses in the end. Um, and so I read a book about him that I found at the public library, and it was just great yarn, like the story. I mean, you can read his Wikipedia page and have like a pretty good time. Um, and the book was really well written too. So I was like, oh, this is a great story for a movie. Like, why hasn't someone made a movie about this? Um, but you know, especially then I didn't really know how to make movies. I started, that was my first feature. Like I had before our Nixon, which was in 2013, I had tried to make several features. So I made a short called The Abortion Diaries, which I initially imagined would be a feature and just wasn't, didn't have the material. Like I had a really good 45 minute cut and like in no way am I the kind of person who is going to pad that to make it a feature. And so I cut it down, thinking the shorter I can make this, the better it will be in the world. So that was that. And then I had a film called Sitting on a Million, which was a huge disaster failure collaboration. But again, I imagined it would be a feature, ended up being about a half an hour again. And then I started Nuts in 2007 or something, like so early, 2008. And I was like, great, this will be a feature. I had no idea how to make a feature. And the, the idea that I had at the beginning was basically the film that you saw, which was how could I make a movie that kind of fools people? Like, how could I like mimic the charlatan's appeal? How could I like take what John Brinkley did with the tools of his time, which were, you know, largely like junk mail and radio and stuff like that. And how could I like use my tools available to me a hundred years later to like perpetuate his con and then somehow reveal that I had done that so that we could all learn a lesson or something, you know, about why you should be a more credulous viewer, you know, uh, than, than we typically are. And how an entertaining story will turn off all your critical faculties. I mean, it, it is just impossible to maintain a kind of like heightened sense of critical awareness of what's happening with manipulation when you're just being entertained. This is why I had to watch Tiger King twice to find out that it was like not good filmmaking. 
like the first time I was just too entertained. I was trying to like have my critical awareness on, but I was like undeniably being entertained and like fed this story that was like cliffhangers and whatever. Anyway, so, so anyway, so I had this idea that I wanted to do that with nuts, but I didn't know how to do it. And that was how it took, that's why it took in the end seven, seven and a half years to make. Um, because it really was just trying to figure out like how to accomplish this big idea that I had, which didn't initially involve any animation and it was just supposed to be an archival film and that didn't work. And then two years into it, I decided to start doing reenactment. I mean, it was just a very gradual, slow process and trying to pitch that film is an exercise in futility. Like I maintain my certainty that it wasn't that I was bad at pitching or that I was bad at grant writing or that I was bad at like sort of explaining the film as best as it could be explained. I'm pretty good at that stuff. Didn't matter. It just wasn't a good pitch. Like it just, you could see how it wasn't working and it, it never was going to work. So, you know, there was some, a few bits of money that I was able to kind of divert along the way from other grants and uh, eventually got a little bit of foundation support and then did a Kickstarter campaign, which almost killed me um, and got it made. Um, long story short, got it made. But when I look back, I cannot begin to account for why I didn't abandon it. Like it's, it seems obvious that I should have abandoned it many times. But I just kept thinking, like, I know this is going to be great. Like, people are going to like this. Like, this is funny and, like, entertaining and surprising. And, and I knew that I had never seen a film that did exactly that thing, you know? That thing where, like, the documentary kind of becomes part of the con and then reveals itself. I was like, I've never seen that. And I really feel like that would be a really interesting experience. And I thought it would be provocative. And that people might get mad at me. And that was very appealing. <laughs> like I was like, ooh, I'll have to, there'll be some controversy. There was no controversy. <laughs> like I thought for sure people would like stand up at Q&As and be like, how dare you call this a documentary? And like that, none of that ever mm. happened. Much to my, much to my mm -hmm, sadness. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, I think because of its, um, not only because of its entertainment value, but I think of, of, um, I mean, I, I heard you talking also too about the fact that you, you ended up editing it um, yourself, um, and and that your, you know, your own propensity, you know, to edit, you know, quite quickly, you know, in terms of of keeping things at a clip. Um, was was part and parcel. It, it actually served the project, um, but that that all for once, for once, <laughs> for once in my life, my my like relentlessly fast editing style was actually yeah. a good match. But I mean, again, I think for for people expecting um, a a documentary, right? I mean, it's it's all about the perception of of what a documentary can be, and you came up in a time as a maker. Um, with a lot of other people from various diverse backgrounds that had to really wrestle with, you know, the, the, the simple methodology and the simple definitions, right, of, of how everybody else perceives what a documentary is. Um, because each of your projects, including, you know, The Pain of Others was also, again, a sort of, we could say, found footage film a la Nixon, except the archive here was, was modern YouTube. Um, where 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 people would diaristically sort of share um, very deeply personal painful things, um, and I think of this idea um, for me anyway of transplantation. I mean, I always feel when I watch an archive film I, that 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 method of taking something from one thing and implanting it in in something else is is I, I, I just, I resonate with that idea. Um, and this, as, as we'll get to in a little bit, you know, this is why I think your latest project, which is the literal trans, transplantation story, um, you know, is, is so moving and so, um, I, I don't know, I mean, I, in, in the writing of it, I don't know if this was your phrase or someone else's, but you talk about a radical act of empathy 
um, in terms of this kind of exposure, um, even, you know, going back to our Nixon, you know, the most unempathetic person you could possibly think of would be Richard Nixon. And yet, I don't know, by the end of the film, there is like huge empathy there um, for a man who's clearly like losing his grip on reality. Um, and, and Brinkley is kind of the same and pain of others. You're representing women who we could easily say they're losing their grip on reality. They're imagining some illness that doesn't really exist. So I think there's something, you know, in those themes, um, uh, sp specifically with an emphasis on the empathy part. You know, um, people are so quick to turn away from something that is distasteful or uncomfortable. Um, and yet you are very, very insistent um, that we go with you down a road of discovery where there's whole worlds of empathy to be had, um, including with Lucian Greaves and the whole satanic, you know, movement. So. I don't know, I, for me, like watching the, your films all together, sometimes it's such a crazy exercise, but it's like these, these things really do emerge and it's, it's very exciting to see that. That's really kind of you to say, and I, I had never thought about some of those ideas and I really appreciate um, you mirroring that back to me because I really do think it's very valuable for me to hear other people's takes on like what brings these works together or like themes that come through them because I don't always see that, you know, from my point of view. Um, I do think that, you know, one of the exercises I do with my students toward the end, like if they're art majors, they're really getting serious about art making, not the intro classes, um, is to do an artist statement. Um, and nobody likes writing an artist statement. And also, nobody likes reading artist statements. So basically, everyone hates artist statements, but we got to write them. And it is interesting to try to figure out, like, who am I? And so I'd give them these exercises. And one of them was like giving them a bunch of words that, like, an artist might be the kind of relationship that artists might want to have with their viewer and circling the ones that apply to them. And so the words are things like, you know, comfort, uh, provoke. Um, you know, uh, empathize with or represent, you know, all these different types of orientations you might have toward both your subject and your, your viewer, really. And when I look at that sheet, I'm like, oh, right, not everyone selects the same things. Like, not everyone goes with provoke, like, as like one of their 10 or five or their top three. And I'm like, oh, right, oh, mine's definitely provoke. Like provoke is in there, you know? And I, I just like, I like the idea of art that asks you to kind of go into an uncomfortable place. And I do think that's a difficult thing to ask of people. And I do think it's a lot, it's a lot to ask of a viewer to, to go into an uncomfortable place. And so I'm very mindful of that. And I do think that there's a way to do that with a smile on your face. And there's a way to do that where, you know, you're, you're not like sort of being cruel to your audience and just making them uncomfortable and asking them to go deal with it on their own. Like, I, I do feel like there's a kind of resolution that I think I'm offering if you're like willing to go into this uncomfortable place, you know? So I, I just wouldn't do it if I didn't think I had some sense of a resolution, even the pain of others, which is the most unresolved story I've ever told ever as an artist. To me, I feel a sense of resolution if you can like hang with that, that movie for like the 71 whole minutes that it, it asks for. Um, there's a place you can get to if you like hang in that, in that story that I think is worth it, obviously, or I wouldn't mm -hmm. have done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, this, this feeling of disorientation or discomfiture or, I don't know, I resonate with that too. I mean, those tend to be the most sort of, those are the pieces I think about for a really long time. Um, and I feel in a sense too, you know, where you begin with maybe the media savviness of audiences and this sort of the meta level of, of, of the communication um, of, of what you're trying to say within your films and then really sort of distilling carefully, you know, those emotions that you're you're trying to evoke and i i would imagine that it would be an exceedingly fragile um 
process, you know, to to get to. Um, in terms of of Hail Satan, which maybe beside besides our Nixon, we could say is your most, I don't know, well-known or most famous film or the film that sort of really got out there to larger audiences. Um, I see that same process and that same relationship with Lucian Greaves, who, you know, we know was a very, very unwilling um, subject of a documentary. Um, can you talk a little bit about that um, relationship with him? Uh, because he's kind of really, if you think about it, your first like live subject <laughs> that you <laughs> that you deal with. And so I'm just wondering with all the experience you brought to that, um, sort of we'll call you mid-career, I guess we could say, mm -hmm. um, all mm -hmm. of a sudden you have this new dynamic with a real life person um, who is trying to... Um, he, the, the the subtleties and the arguments just sort of ripple up to the surface, but it it takes a while, and you let us sort of flounder yeah. in this space of like, what is going, what is precisely what is going on here between the maker and her subject? Right, right, and like, what's the attitude? Yeah, where are we going with this? Um, I would say that Lucian and I were a good pair because um, I, I think the only person who hated filming him more than him was me. I, I just, I find it so intensely still rude and uncomfortable to like point cameras at people and to, I just, I, I understand that there's a value to it obviously, but it is not fun for me at all. And so, you know, I learned a lot over the course of those two years making that film about how to occupy that space and, and remember that we're all in this together and I'm not, every act of filming is not like exploitation or, you know, extraction or just bad in some way. Like I really had to fight in my mind to believe that what we were doing was worth it. Um, and that really took going out and shooting, coming back into the edit, seeing what we got, seeing what we didn't get. And then being like, no, I mean, we need to do this again. Like we need to go into Lucian's office and like ask him to talk, to, you know, whatever. So it was really a great experience for me. And again, I do think that for most documentary filmmakers, they sort of start there. You know, they sort of start with like, what does it mean to ask for access into someone's life? And and I'm like a novice, you know, I'm really learning. And I, and I because of just like my own specific personality and proclivities and insecurities, you know, and, and desires, I took a long time to get to this point where I would be willing to sort of do this type of relationship and really deal with all the stress of it and the burden, you know, the responsibility um, that is so, so heavy, you know, and it should be. Um, these were marginalized people who are widely reviled, misunderstood and hated. Um, so I definitely felt the responsibility to, to represent them accurately, you know, and that felt like really heavy. Um, I lost track of my, your question though. It was really about that it relationship. It was about the relationship, but also I'm curious to know like when in that process, I mean, can you remember that one moment or that one day, whether you with, were with Lucian or with one of the other um, people in the, in the satanic movement um, and, and this very specific fight, um, you know, that, that um, be, becomes a legal battle in essence, you know? So once it's kind of pulled into, into that realm, um, it, 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 it's sort of that, that is the, the foundation, you know, with which you, you really base, um, all of the previous interviews and their points of view. And you begin to realize that, you know, the white hats and the black hats, well, the white, you know, who, who are the white hats, who are the black hats? I mean, so to speak. And, and there's this beautiful movement that begins, um, when you're in the Christian camp and then when you're in the satanic camp and all the things that are said and the points that are being made, um, do you remember that moment um, when you, that clicked for you in, the, in, in terms of being able to present that kind of very robust, very solid argument that is at the heart of that film? Yeah, 
yeah, I, I sort of do have a moment like that because there was, a, you know, the, the beginning of the process was very focused on Lucian and it was very kind of like, okay, like broad strokes, like what happened? Like, who are the key players? Like, how did this, how did this movement come to exist? Where did the Satanic Temple come from? The origin story. And I always knew this film would just be the origin story of the Satanic Temple. And that's how you create a sense of narrative closure in your heart, even though you know this story is not going to end when you stop filming. I knew that if we just covered the six year period from 2013 to like the end of the time we were filming, that that would be a satisfying arc. So a lot of the bulk of what we had to do was like collect archival and a lot of this stuff had already happened in the past. And so the first year ish was really focused on that. And then in the second year ish, once we got fully funded and we were like in production for real, you know, it was going out and meeting all of the not famous, not spokespeople members of the Satanic Temple, you know, and traveling the country, going to LA and Arizona and Seattle and, you know, Boston and all these different places and over and over again being so moved, like just so moved by the things people were telling me and the evident obviousness of the fact that this was a religion and that this was performing the role of a religion for people for whom religion had been harmful in the past and who, or, or who had never imagined that there could be a religion that they would really vibe with and subscribe to and be accepted by. And that was, that was the big change for me where I started to be like, right, this is not just about like these high level constitutional values and really important things um, having to do with church and state separation. I am watching a religious movement get born like right in front of me and what it, all the messiness of that and the joy of that and the frighteningness of it and all that was so intensely cool and rare that I just got really it changed my feeling with the film I, I started to get that this was not an academic sort of um troll essentially that it was um something much more interesting and something that I didn't get to show enough in the film. Like, I think for a lot of people, they've told me that the second, if they watch it a second time, that they are much more aware of like that kind of birth of a re religion storyline that's happening and much more aware of like the fact that the film's kind of at the end of the day, really more about religion than it is about the constitution. Um, but that is a second viewing experience. It's not the foregrounded one. And I knew that. Um, so, you know, so it, it, is a, it is a kind of like late breaking development in the story for me. And, that, and that's how it's represented in the film, you know, just that the whisper of it is there. And then you can sort of think about it afterwards. Well, what does make a religion? You know, why, why are human beings religious? Where did religion come from? Like all those kinds of questions are where the film left me. And I'm very happy about that because it's not where I started. You know, I started in a very different mode, which was much more about political and, you know, politics and religion and politics and the extremely frightening reality of, you know, a small group of extremely motivated, um, particularly evangelical Christians trying to influence um, our world in a way that is, should be paid more attention to. That was where I started. And where I landed was like feeling acutely aware of what I'd missed my whole life, you know, just, oh my gosh, like, that's what people have that have religion. They have this sense of community, of safety, of strength in numbers. Agency also is something I hadn't really gotten. The fact that it's pretty hard to like do something, <laughs> like you're just a person, just like an isolated atheist bouncing around. But when you are united with a group, of any size, it could be five people, um, you know, with a kind of common um, narrative, artistic, uh, spiritual purpose that you are capable, like you are capable of just doing stuff that, that, that you can't alone. And that's where it left me feeling a little mm. sad about my inability to join groups, <laughs> <laughs> my lifelong aversion to Society. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in that same same boat for sure. Um, are you aware? Are you aware of how like isolating and like lonely it is? Uh, totally, 
Totally. I mean, that's why, yeah. again, you know, this time now where we are supposed to be all be isolating, I'm like, well, this is normal life for me, um, in essence, um, with, yeah. you know, um, this this kind of understanding that that it is global. Now we actually are part of the, the entire world because the entire world is going through this. Um, this idea of loneliness, though, um, is is a great segue in the time we have left to talk about your the project that you're doing now. Um, and I mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, that I just kind of felt um, this was um, a natural step that you are now turning the camera on yourself. Um, again, something you've you've done before, but in a completely different realm in a completely different time of your life um not enhanced by electronic art or or anything but your own personal experience of deciding um the the project is called the confessions of a good samaritan which is a beautiful title um and this is your um foray into donating a kidney uh, voluntarily to a stranger. Um, and it's called a Good Samaritan donor. I mean, that's one of the ways it's described. Um, we learned that you have a bigger than average amygdala in your brain <laughs> and that this, you know, tends to indicate that um, as you ask, you know, what what is a good person? You know, I'm so preoccupied with being a good person. What does that mean? Does it mean... what? Is it what I do? Is it who I am? Is it the actions I take? Um, and I just wanted to, I know it's a very fragile thing to talk about a work in progress, but um, again, this idea of transplantation, this idea of, um, you know, movement from one body to another um, and and how lonely that experience is. But then again, you've, you have found a community of like-minded people um, and there's such, I, I see at least in the little bit of footage I've seen the joy in that um, because it is a really um, radical <laughs> um, gesture to do that. So can you just talk about that a little bit and, and, and where you are with the project um, if you don't, if it's not too personal spiritually? Not at all. No, I mean, and it'll, probably what I say will be less clear than anything <laughs> I've said before because it's all so much like in process, you know. But I would say a couple of things based on that beautiful introduction you just gave to the project. The first is that um, I'm glad you like the title because I do too. And the sort of inspiration for that title really came from a long time ago research project that I had done on like the history of memoir, sort of trying to understand like that particular form in, in a literary sense. And most Western scholars trace, would say the first sort of Western memoir in, in a sort of traditional sense is by St. Augustine, and it was called The Confessions, Confessions of St. Augustine. You know, and it lays out St. Augustine's sinful youth and eventual salvation, you know, sort of uh, conversion to Christianity and finding God. So it was a, con a confession, and it was a redemption story. And, you know, it's in this culture that I've grown up in, sort of a given that a memoir is a redemption story. Like there almost isn't any other kind of memoir. And I tried for many years to like prove that wrong. <laughs> I still have not. So if anyone listening to this has any examples of memoirs that are successful that people have actually read uh, that aren't redemption stories, I'm dying to, to know. Anyway, so, but but of course, because I'm you know, me, I'm like, well, there's got to be another kind of memoir you could tell. So, so I'm sort of like thinking about that a lot and in relationship to this film, but like my spoiler alert is that I'm probably going to fail and this is going to turn into a redemption story and that's okay. Um, because, you know, in my, in my heart, and I don't know how much of this will end up like on the screen or, or really at the, at, at the literal level of the film, like how much of this will be in the film. Um, in my heart, this film is about a person who starts out um, very lonely and then sort of gets, um, goes into a, a, a dark place and then kind of comes out with a better sense of um, themselves, a better sense of how, what it means to be a good person. 
And um, and I don't know how I'm going to tell that story in a lot of ways, but because it's so internal and it's so it's there's no drama to it. Like there's nothing. It can't be like this happened. You know, like it was just this very internal, very spiritual experience. But you know, along the way, basically, you know, this idea of organ transplantation became the idea of the film. You know, so 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 it's really it's about me going through this experience and and meeting this tribe of people who have done this thing that I've done, this marriage and kidney donation, seeing how I do and don't relate to them on a, on a basic level, and then also um, coming to actually understand that my my early views on this were really mistaken you know like my my attitude early on was everyone should do this like people who don't do this are basically selfish like the you know and it took a long time for me to get that that's not uh, a very well it's not a generous reading first of all and uh it's not really based in reality like not first of all not everyone is like ch childless and single and like doesn't have a family to think about or worry about that's the first level of how maybe it was easier for me to do this than it would be for many other people. Um, and secondly, like, uh, you know, I am financially stable enough where I was able to take a lot of time off of work and do this. It was actually quite expensive to do. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm rambling on, but so anyway, so the film will basically be a kind of like two stories, like one or three. One story is me having this experience. And the second story is the past, present, and future of organ transplantation as a scientific, medical, you know, and philosophical, bioethical thing. Uh, that's actually not a very long history. It's less than 100 years old and even really less than that, more like 50 in practical sense. Um, and it's fascinating to watch people's ethical ideas about what makes you a good person or what is obligated of you. Um, change as technology allows for different things. It never occurred to anyone if you should give your kidney to your dying mother until that was actually possible. Um, so watching that is really interesting and, and sort of seeing like the sort of ways that technology and progress interact with um, our ethics. And then the third thing is really an argument that is about sort of like where empathy comes from and really teasing apart some concepts that are really too, that are too conflated because we don't think about them hard enough. Like compassion is not the same as empathy and empathy is not the same as charity. Like we sort of take all these words and make them into one thing. And I really want to pick them apart and think about, for example, the scientist that you met in the short sample is making a causal argument. I mean, she's saying empathy, like is a thing that happens in the brain and people with a lot of it are often moved to be more compassionate. That's like a, a particular causal chain, right? But not everyone agrees with that. So there's different ways that people formulate the relationship between um, things like rules that are handed to you by society. Like if you grew up Jewish, then you know you would know like these sort of certain levels of giving in the Torah, which are considered better. Like there's like different levels of charity essentially, and like the highest one is one where you give to someone you don't know who doesn't know you and you don't receive thanks right and i was like oh that's what i'm doing but i didn't know that and so we we all know from any religion that we grew up with that the idea of caring about your neighbor as if they are yourself is the goal but anyone who ever said that was like too simple or you know um was not trying to actually do it it's pretty impossible and that's part of the, the humor i think of the project would be my failure like I, I really failed at like being a saint like it was like really basically it was very hard for me to continually keep the well-being of this anonymous stranger at the highest point of my consciousness and not be like, I'm annoyed that I'm in the hospital again today doing these stupid blood tests that I already did, but they messed up the thing. And you know, like that's not that big of a uh, uh, a, a hardship, <laughs> like having to like go back to the hospital to redo your blood work. But the amount that I was furious about it <laughs> suggested that it was much more important to me than like the literal person who was dying of kidney disease that I was trying to help. It was really hard to keep that person's welfare 
in a higher position than my own petty day-to-day life, yeah. you know? But I mean, again, like for me, that's what's probably gonna make it resonate, you know, with all of us who think about these things, whether we do that, maybe a lot of people don't think about it at all, as you sort of point out in, in, in the sample that I watched. A small number. There's a, is a little number. Some people out there are psychopaths. It's yeah. A small amount. Yeah. But, they are but this, this very represented. Very rep overly <laughs> represented. But um, <laughs> they, uh, this bid, this bid to be good, do good, you know, be a good person is, um, is for me. I mean, really at the heart of it. And you're, you're again the the impetus to turn the camera on yourself you know this this gradation of of you know as you say this um intrusion um except now you know it's it's into your own life into your own mind into your own philosophy um and i, I again i just find it so um needed you know these these topics that you know we don't often see or feel in in these in an issue doc or or anything that's trying to you know make a bid for it, it, the 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 medium always tends to do the opposite you know to really focus on people who are who are bad and who are crazy and who are you know doing weird things and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And I think that's huge like good good goodness and like people that are how boring upright, like, are not good <laughs> They're not good. They're not good, like literary characters. Um, and in, in fact, like in, in art, like in serious art, one of the ways you know that art is serious is that no one's a good mm -hmm. person. Like, that's actually like one of the things we exactly. look for. Like it's a, it's a sign of your artistic sophistication to point out that every, you know, again, not to like talk about Tiger King again, but that's where like that thing goes so wrong because of this desire to be like, everyone's bad and everyone's evil in the end. And you're like, well, no, actually like some of the people you're painting as evil are really not evil in relationship to <laughs> So like, you know, but that's a bid, that's the easiest kind of like, you know, deepness and, and depth in art is just to be like, everyone's bad. That's just actually not, accurate <laughs> um but it's a difficult thing to manage because like you know just doing a good thing um is not a particularly interesting mm -hmm. story um who are your as as just sort of a last curious question i mean who are the makers working today that you that you really admire and and whose work resonates with you that are that you feel are really sort of skirting the edge of something exciting something we don't normally see anymore um the things the things that just kind of inspire you um, to keep going in your own work and to keep developing um, your your own artistic practice. Well, I would say on the on the younger side, or like on the you know not not like the masters, you know, sort of who almost you could name without me naming them in a way. Like it's like yes, I grew up watching you know Agnes Varda and Werner Herzog and Earl Morris, and like those were all there and like are hugely important. But more recent, more like peers, I think a lot about KJ. Kirsten Johnson, um, whose most recent film about her dad is so next level brilliant that I was like crushed by it. I was like, I love this movie and I'm trying to just love it, but I'm also like, man, I feel like the bar just got raised for me trying to make a personal film. And that's a good thing, but also very scary. So that's good. It's good to be intimidated and inspired by someone. Um, and then I also, uh, what was it that, uh, let me give you a second to think about this. Oh, and then there's a, I don't remember the filmmaker's name, um, unfortunately, but there's another film I saw at Sundance this year called The Mole Agent. Did you see The Mole Agent? M-O-L-E? The Mole yeah. Agent. It's, it's amazing. Um, and again, you know, it's just so inventive and so empathetic and so funny and so like just risk taking and it just, blew my mind and again made me feel like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, you know, I gotta try harder or something. Um, so yeah, those are some mm. people. Maita Alberti. Yes, our, our... That's her name. Maita Yay. Alberti is the name of the filmmaker who made the mole agent. And it's it's such an incredible film. I hope everyone yeah. sees it. Well I haven't and so now I will. Um Thank you so much for this delightful conversation. I, I literally, I could sit here and talk to you for hours. 
Uh, <laughs> Me too. Thank you. <laughs> um, but um, I, I'm really excited again, you know, by what you're doing and and all the things that you're bringing to this film. Uh, and you know, we it, it's it's this almost impossible process, you know, to sort of talk about. Um, in any coherent way. And, and I always appreciate, you know, when those makers were forced to, I mean, first of all, um, just basically even for funding reasons, but, um, you know, the way in which we can share ideas and inspirations um, is is really, really vital. And I, and I just have always really loved your voice. I mean, I think it's, Thank I think you. it's a vital voice for our community. And I think it's a vital voice in in media making and um, so I really, really deeply appreciate, you know, getting to talk to you and, uh, yeah, I mean, stay safe and healthy and thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lucy Dreaming podcast. This episode was recorded on April the 17th in the year of 2020. Lucid Dreaming is a production of Lono Studio with host Pamela Cohn. We will be back with a new conversation with our guest Ronan Alexandrovich. If you like our podcast, please spread the word and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify. We look forward to sharing some more conversations with you very soon. Goodbye, dreamers. Goodbye, dreamers. Goodbye, dreamers. Goodbye, dreamers.